0: Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for spring semester 2023. Today, the Federal Reserve. This is a topic that's not in the textbook. It will, you have resources, and I'll show you some resources online here that will help you with this one. Uh, First things first, is that there is a um, link, (laughs) the Federal, Federal Reserve Tools of Monetary Policy. It's a couple of pages, and it's from the Federal Reserve itself, and it does what I do in the lecture. It explains it, although I explain it a little bit differently. Uh, it can get a little bit deeper in that uh, page, at the, the that web page at the uh, Federal Reserve. But that'll help you out. Now, there's also, this was done some years back, a cheesy animated video. It's made for high school and early college it's called in plain english and you click on it it's just a player that plays this video and it covers about everything i talk about in this lecture except that it's an animation uh kind of thing with some guy named Buck, uh, get it? You know, dollars, bucks, anyway. But it's actually not bad at all for an introduction to what I'm talking about today in the lecture. So you got plenty of resources to be able to handle this. Also, just before I forget, the final exam, you may not have known it, but the final exam is coming soon. And I've got a list of terms from the course. That is your best, at least for terminology, the best thing you could have as a study guide. Now, I warned you early in the course about this. Let me show you this real quick here before we get to the numbers. This, 116 terms in this course. All right, new or specific definitions for things that you might already uh, have in your your uh, vocabulary, but this kind of gives you an idea of how far we have come in this course. That, so <laughs> be sure you go through and write down the definition of each of these and get it on one of your note cards for the final exam or something like that. But, uh, as a matter of fact, when I built this <laughs> And I actually I had to go back a couple of times because I forgot something. I was even a little appalled at what an asshole I am uh, here. This is a lot of terminology, but it, you know, this is uh, an upper- level college course, so it gives you kind of an idea of what to expect. But yeah, I use this as kind of a good way to gauge how efficiently you can retrieve information, knowledge. I had last semester. Someone copied this list and pasted it into an email message to me and said, can you define each of these terms? (laughs) I I kid you not. And I just typed back, really? (laughs) <laughs> she never contacted me again. I bet she trashed me in the review. He won't answer my questions. But anyway, no, I'm not going to tell you. If you got one or two of these, you know, just send me a quick message. If there's something you can't find in your notes uh, in this list, but anyway, that's that. That gives you a little bit of help here with this. And now I'll look at the numbers here to get started. And we've got another one of these grouchy days. It's not a horrible day. The Dow is up a tiny bit. Then the S&P 500 is down a tiny bit, and the NASDAQ is down. Of course, that's where I do my investing. That's the one that's down, uh, good and hard today. So I'm getting my butt kicked. Yep, I am in the poorhouse. <laughs> Everything I've got in my fun portfolio isn't fun right now. but. Uh, one thing is, notice that crude oil has is staying within that uh, the original trading band that I had talked about, the 72 to 79. even today, with a little bit of an uptick in the crude oil prices, uh, we're still in that uh, band, and'll we'll probably stay there unless something terrible happens. Gold over uh, late last week went back down below the magic $2,000 an ounce line. It's trying to find its way back up above it, but it's just not, it's lost that steam that it had there. 10-year bond, yields are down, so that means the prices are up. So there's some buying into the bond market, and that would probably be funds that had come out of equities, as you can see equities are slipping a little bit, and that 's giving some uh, motivation for bond uh, investments, so the prices are up, and the yields are down it 's not nothing spectacular you 've got the yields are down about five and a half base, oh yeah five and a half basis points now, so Now, here's one that's a little bit more troubling. The euro is strongly appreciating against the dollar. It's in a surge now. It's crossed that $1.10 per euro mark and it's on its way up. So, that's the dollar is weakening. The good side of that is as the dollar weakens, that makes our exports cheaper overseas. So that will stimulate purchases in Europe of American goods, and it will make the European goods coming to the United States more expensive. So if you were planning to buy that French wine, you might want to buy it soon before the price of French products goes up anymore, or your German schnitzel or whatever the hell. Now, also, the, uh, pounds, the pound is, uh, British pound is also surging against the dollar today. So, you got a couple of major currencies that are strengthening and the dollar is weakening right now. Interestingly, though, the yen, well, actually, it's, it's the yen is backwards. I, I got to remember, Okay. It looks like the yen is appreciating, but it's actually depreciating it against the dollar. But it's falling, so the depreciation is beginning to ease up, and if it goes into negative territory, that will mean that the yen has appreciated. I hate, hate, hate that, but anyway. London just piddled all day. The Nikkei before it had risen good, But then, uh, for the rest of the day in Tokyo, it was just sliding back down to the point where it finished, almost where it started the day. And then, of course, then the sun set in Tokyo, and it rose in London, and London just Interestingly, London started out really bad. It had a hard opening, but it recovered from that, but it never really did anything after that. So, the international scene is really difficult to call right now. It's it's complicated, and we have to what the smoke clear a little bit to see what's really going on. Let me see if there's oh let me show you something just to get started on the Federal Reserve well I did it I killed the wrong one okay let's try it again Google I had the sense I was born with yield curve there we go interest rates I'll show you where our yield curve is right now it's not pretty if I good grief Let's try another socket, see if we can find another place. Yep. OK. OK, here's this one. As you can see, the yield curve is sliding downward. And it's, it's nasty. It's going down hard. And that's a strong indication that we do have a recession coming. I'm still bullish on the economy, but this can take the bull right out of you. Uh, so, there you are, plan to get your jobs early and often. We may be in for a hard ride here in a few, you know, within the next four to six months. Don't know, can't tell yet. Anyway, to this is all by way of beginning the topic of the Federal Reserve. Uh, the, the Federal Reserve is our, the United States' uh, central bank. A bank that is the one that is the big bank of all the banks. Oddly enough, central banks, a country, uh, country with a central bank, was not a modern thing. By the time we're in the 1600s, not officially, but there, some countries had a bank that was more or less taking the role of the central bank, uh, sort of by default, with the acquiescence of uh, the uh, the sovereign. There was a bank run by a powerful a powerful family or something like that that was sort of overseeing the operations of the banks in that country. By the time we get to the 1700s, that had become official in some of the more developed countries of the world. This is our central bank in France. This is our central bank in Germany, uh, and all that. The United States did not, when the United States was formed uh, and we got a constitution in the 1780s, There was not a mention of a central bank. There was only language that said Congress has the power of the coin, of coinage. But, I mean, the founding fathers did understand that a central bank was an important thing. It's sort of a coordinating bank. But God knows it wasn't going to happen because you had this idea that that's the government. And there is no, we would, don't want that kind of uh, authority vested in a central power that was just the way the United States was from its founding and the early settlers and all that. There was an attempt made tw- several times in the early 1800s to create sort of like a quasi-central bank, a first bank, as it were. The first one just fell flat on its face. It wasn't constructed in any way that could make it that. The second round actually got underway. A a second national bank got underway. And, but we ended up, it was still, there was suspicion of the central authority, the central power, and we got a president He was an asshole of a human being. Andrew Jackson, he was, a lot of him was a phony. He was a genocidal uh, Indian killer. He was a a jerk, but he was a populist, and I'm gonna work for the people. He sent the federal troops to raid this quasi central bank, take its money and hand it out to uh, people. Thus ended our first uh, uh, serious experiment with a central bank. Now a little bit of a term from linguistics. Before and after the Civil War. Before the Civil War, you would have heard a person say, these United States of America. It was only after the Civil War that that began to fade back into the United States of America. Now, that's an important distinction because it took that bloody, ungodly, awful war to finally get it, the, the, it into people's heads that there is a central government and it has, the, uh, it has supreme authority. People to this day don't like that, but that was how it was. It took uh, the slaughter, the largest slaughter of soldiers in American history to get us to the point where we could even contemplate a central government that had full power to be a sovereign. Well, unfortunately, the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s were not a very good time for getting government to exercise much authority. It was a time of corruption. The power of the purse was the power of the politics and all of that. It began to crack a couple of times. In, the 18, in 1890, there was actually, the government flexed its muscle on monopolies. It passed anti-monopoly legislation. It was very weak, and uh, after a couple of court cases, the big monopolies figured out how to get around it. But there was that first showing of the central government trying to flex real authority over the economy, not just, not, not just over the land and the, and the territories, but over the economy itself. And then we came into the 1900s. And there was a kind of an odd thing that happened in the second decade of the 1900s, the 1910s. You began to see what might be described as almost liberal politicians getting uh, in t- getting into power. Woodrow Wilson was one of those, and I'll speak to uh, to that briefly here in a moment. Let me find myself a marker that's going to work for this. But um, here was the problem in the late eighteen hundreds. The banking system of the United States was a fiasco. It was just a terrible, terrible thing. You had all kinds of fly-by-night banks drifting around. There were these things called sod banks that were just popped up in boom towns and then folded up, and the owners took off with the money and all that kind of stuff. And in the big cities, the banks were there were efforts to run good banks, but then there were really bad actors who were running bad banks. And they would steal from people and they would offer ridiculous terms on loans and things like that uh, and on scams. And uh, so it, w- it was a, an awful time. And there were also runs on banks. Uh, Banks work like this. You put in $100 to my bank. I have to keep a little bit of that in case you need some of it back. The rest, I can lend to someone else to make a profit off the interest. That's how a bank works. Well, if too many people hit a bank for their money at once, the bank instantly folds, it collapses. So that was a problem. Banks did not keep sufficient reserves. And sometimes, even when they did, if my bank collapsed, everyone would freak out and run to your bank, and, oh my god, a bank collapsed, everyone runs to your bank, you're fine, except that you don't have enough to meet all of these crazed people who want their money back. So you can have a domino effect of banks. <coughs> it was so severe <coughs> at some point that the whole economy kind of sl- was slid into recessions, for for years after these cascades of bank failures, so we got into the 19 uh, teens, and it was enough was enough. You had some more progressive politicians getting into power, and we finally got around to the point where we said, "We've got to have a central bank. We've got to have a central bank." And so, the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was passed. It created a central bank. This is the bank of the country. And it was given... Powers to run its show. Uh, First things first, it divided the country into 12 regions. And each region would have a district bank, one district bank per region. the problem was that back then all uh, the population and g- a great deal of the business activity was on the eastern side of the country the west was really still a wild west back at that time so the eastern regions were very small the western regions were huge and unfortunately, these days, that means now that so much of the population is on the west side, you've got places like the Bank of San Francisco, which oversees this big, huge region, and it is just ridiculously difficult. Let me show you something here. Um, whoa, look at all. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can eat tonight. Oh hell, I don't have a $1 bill in here. Why don't I have a dollar bill? Well, I come into class without a dollar. If you look at the dollar bill, you'll see a mark on the right side with a letter A through G, uh, something like that. And this tells which of the district banks was the source of that dollar i think it's on these these 20s and 10s too but i can't remember i don't see it right off the, right away that's an a oh it is there but it's it's listed as a part of the lettering uh g I, I can't remember what G is, but you'll see that each of the banks has lettered currency. And that lettered currency says, well, this is the, the district bank that, from which that originated. Now, as far as the Federal Reserve goes, um, right here. One, it was the, the uh, Federal Reserve Act established the Board of Governors. This this is seven governors. They are appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. One of those seven serves as the chairman on an exam I might say the Board of Governors comprises uh, the Board of Governors comprises seven governors plus a chairman. That's false. The chairman is one of the seven. These are the big dogs. They are the ones who historically they were consummate professionals uh, from the ranks of banking and finance Possibly accounting they were above reproach, some of them were con- generally there were more conservatives than liberals, but they were all quite well uh, quite well versed in everything about banking that has fallen apart in your lifetimes. Some people have been appointed who were of questionable uh, credentials. Starting with President George W. Bush and then President Barack Obama, uh, they appointed governors who were not, shall we say, high quality of what we used to have. However, the people in charge are still, the vast majority of them are highly trained people. Now, each district has a district bank. I didn't put the word bank in here. I apologize. Okay. Each district bank has... So, uh, the president. One president per bank. Now, these people are important because they oversee their district and its banking practices. These cats are really professional. They are the top of the line in their professions. Historically, they were all older white men. Diversity has come to these people in the governors and in the banks. Rest assured that these are, I've seen, I've not met, but I've seen at um, conferences uh, a couple of these bank presidents—they never—they're dressed to the nines. They're diplomatic in everything they say. They're careful. They're smart. They—they're consummate. I don't think they've even ever had sex, but—but uh, <laughs> but I, I swear it's almost like I don't want to go near them because they'll know that I'm a little little demon or something. But anyway, these these cats are heavy duty. Now, uh, these there is a big committee, and this is in that text that I've given you, and also in the animation video, animated video. There is a committee called the Federal Open Market Committee. This comprises the seven governors plus five district bank presidents. Now, these... Four of these... Serve rotating two year terms. One of them is a permanent voting seat. The one that is permanent is the Bank of New York, what we call the Empire Bank. There's a reason that one is a permanent seat. This FOMC, as we call it, has a great deal of power. This is the committee that decides whether interest rates will be raised, kept the same, or lowered. That's what they do. The reason the Empire Bank president is a permanent seat is because once they've decided on an action, the Empire Bank is where that decision is executed Uh, these people run our at least short-term economy to in a very real sense they run our lives and most people don't know about this this these actions the way they they manage interest rates they declare this one interest rate will go up, stay the same, or go down. But the big thing they do is they can drain liquidity or add liquidity to the economy. And they do it every day to the tune of billions of dollars. If they think that interest rates are too low, they will tell the Empire Bank to start pulling money out of the economy, which will raise interest rates. Supply of money goes down, the price of money, interest rates goes up. If they think that there is too little, uh, rather, if they think interest rates should go down, they'll just say, okay, Empire Bank, start adding liquidity, and billions of dollars will flow into the economy. They have a bunch of ways of doing it. Some of them, I mean, I cover this in a couple of different advanced finance classes. And I swear, even for me, it's like the wheels on the bus go round and round. They have all these different ways they do it. But they do it. So, for example, for the last year and a half, they saw the economy had too much money in it. So they, about nine months ago, they started draining liquidity. That was the Fed, sucking money out of the economy, and by doing that, the supply of money goes down and interest rates go up. That's what they were doing. Now, they've begun to get a little worried, and they say, all right, turn the vacuum cleaner down. It's, we're we're, we're beginning to cause too much problems with the economy, what we're doing. So, that's what they do, and it's swirling around us every day, and sometimes they'll even, if their job, if their goal is to drain liquidity, they'll add liquidity, just to bluff out the speculators. It's maddening trying to follow what they're doing from day to day, but anyway, okay. Let me get off that for a minute here. Here's the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, uh, operating under the authority of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. The Federal Reserve has three duties. There was a fourth one added in the late 1970s that runs counter to the, another one that was one of the originals. And I'll talk about that in a little while here. But the three original duties the first one is that the they set the fractional reserve ratio that's how much a bank has to keep in its vaults of the money that it gets yeah is this the Federal Reserve Act or the... Opening? No, Federal Reserve Act. Let me get that off the board here. As a matter of fact, just to clarify that I'm returning to the original subject here after that side mention. You probably saw this in macro, in your macroeconomics class, but I'll just repeat it here. Suppose that we have uh, a requ- fractional require, let's call it the required reserve ratio, is ten percent. Amount on the books is the first column of a bank. There's a bank. This is the reserve that must be kept, 10%. And this is how much is available after that. Okay, so suppose that you, you, you have $1,000 and you bring it to my bank. Okay, so on my book, I have a liability of $1,000. Now, the reserve I have to keep is $100, 10%. So that means that 90 dollars is available for me to lend. You come to me you mean $900? Huh? You mean $900? Say that again? 900 dollars 900. I'm just testing your ass here. 900. Yeah. OK. 900. You come to me and you say, "Mr. Banker, I should like to borrow some money because I want to start my own service." Really? What do you want to do? Well, I'd like to start an escort service. I'm changing. What he, you're changing your name to Sven, and you're going to call your service uh, Sven Eats. Yeah, like Uber Eats, except you deliver love. <laughs> <laughs> so I say, why? Well, that sounds like a wonderful. Idea. <laughs> so you get the nine hundred, and you pay this young lady to do the web marketing and you know set up the you know transport and find the talent not that you aren't talent but yeah. <laughs> and so you give her $900 she comes to my bank and she deposits $900 and so I keep out of that 900 I keep $90 in the vault and then it uh, gives me $810 to lend. And so we go to the next round. You, madam, come to my bank and say, I have a plan for a business. Why, what kind of plan is it? Don't tell me it's like that guy. I don't want competition. You say, oh no, my mine is health foods, gluten-free, vegan, and all that. We call it (laughs) tasteless-is-us. I say, well, this is a great idea. Here's $810. And so you hire this young lady to produce foods made with cauliflower flour and other high-fiber things that make people go to the toilet. And we have a very good business and you come back to me with that $810 and you put it in my bank. You see what's happening? The money supply is growing on its own. I put that $81 into the bank and then that gives me, I never get this one right, $810, $710, $720, $729. Yeah. And so that 729 flows back into the banking system. The money supply is growing on its own. At its own, uh, without any intervention. So the Federal Reserve sets that fractional reserve ratio because as the fractional (coughs) reserve ratio goes up, the speed with which that money grows goes down. In fact... There's a simple formula. It's a little more complicated if you talk about retaining cash balances, uh, people. But the simple money multiplier is the initial is 1 over the required reserve ratio. So in this case, if I start with 1000, if I look at that money multiplier here at 10%, the money multiplier is 1 over 0.10, which is 10 times. If I ra- if the Fed raised it to 20%, the, mul- the mul- multiplier would go from 1 over 0.10 to one over 0.20, which is five times. So as the fractional reserve ratio is raised, it slows down the speed of growth. In this case, the total amount at the end would be the original $1,000 times one over 0.10, which is $10,000. A $1,000 deposit with a fractional reserve of, one th- of 0.10 will create $10,000. If the Fed raised that to 0.20, the growth would be only to 5,000. If the Fed lowered the fractional reserve ratio to 0.05, 5%, the multiplier would go up to 20 so that 1,000 would become 20,000. So this has a very real direct impact on the economy, where the Fed sets this. Now, maybe 10 years ago, something like that, one of my students said, well, what is the fractional reserve ratio right now? It g- completely got me. I didn't know what it was. So I called the St. Louis Fed, I have some former fellow PhD students in the Fed system, and um, I, I got a hold of him and I said, well what's the fractional reserve ratio right now? And he said, which one? Which completely, f- floor- wait, what? He said, yeah, we have different ones. I didn't know that. And he said, well that's because you're just a stupid professor, something like that. <laughs> so uh, he explained to me, actually, The required reserve ratio depends upon how much money the bank has. I was surprised, he said that banks with very small total uh, assets have a required reserve ratio that's zero. uh, I said zero, they don't have to keep any? He said, well they do, obviously, but there's not a requirement that they do. Well, that shocked the hell out of me. He, I think it was f- up to like $50 million in assets, the reserve ratio is zero. For assets from $50,001 up to something like 500, uh, 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 I'm sorry, fifty million dollars up to like 500 million, the fractional reserve ratio is like point. Uh, zero three five, and then above that, the required for any uh, funds they have above five hundred million one dollar, they have even more. Yeah. When you say point zero three five? You mean three point five? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and, and I, I I usually I say things as percents, but it just kind of. Uh, Surprised me that there actually is a tiered system, and they call these levels tranches, T-R-A-N-C-H-E-S. The tranche from zero to five uh, to fifty million has a required reserve ratio of zero percent. The tranche from fifty million one dollar up to I can't remember what the numbers were it was like five hundred million one uh, is has uh, that tranche has a required reserve ratio of three point five percent. So, the, so, it is actually kind of a complicated system. Now, interestingly enough, this tool uh, 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 of the Fed is very limited in its use. Because it's like a meat cleaver. I mean, you tick that a little bit, and the money supply, whoa, whoa, uh, up and down. But anyway... That is a, yeah, go ahead. So, other than the security of being able to make sure they meet the demand of people wanting to withdraw money, is there any reason why a bank wouldn't want the reserve ratio to be as low as possible? Oh, absolutely, there's no reason. They want that thing down there at uh, at the baseline. And that can be a problem in itself. But anyway, I put duties here. I should have put uh, three original tools. These are the tools of monetary policy. Now the second tool that it can use is setting the discount rate. This is the rate that the Fed will lend money This is the rate at which the Fed will lend money to banks. The Fed actually sets this, and it's like a signal. We're raising the rate at which banks can borrow from us by a quarter of a percent. That's a message to the economy. We want interest rates to go up. That's a message to the economy that the Fed wants interest rates to go up. So I think right now the Fed has raised the discount rate eight consecutive times. Tick, tick, tick. Just warning, we want interest rates to go up. Now, banks historically didn't borrow from the Fed. They borrowed from each other in what's called the federal funds market. And the federal funds market has a somewhat higher interest rate than the discount rate. The Fed cannot set the federal funds rate because it's a market-driven rate. Banks deciding what they'll charge each other. The Fed can influence it by pulling money out of the Fed funds market or pushing money in, but it can't set the federal funds rate. It will announce its target, but it can't set it. Be cautious when you see a lot of supposed experts say well the federal funds well the federal reserve board raised the federal funds rate from 5% to 5.3%. No they didn't. They said they have a target of that and they're going to work to make that target happen, but they can't set the federal funds rate. All they can do is set the discount rate. But the question would come up, well, if banks can borrow from the Fed at a lower rate that they can borrow from each other, <laughs> banks can borrow at the discount rate, which is cheaper than banks borrowing from each other at the federal funds rate. Why would any bank ever borrow from the federal funds market at a higher rate? Oh, well, that's historically, of course they would. You've got a choice, sir. I'm your dad, she's your friend. You need $1,000 like last night. Seems that you owe a debt to someone who works in a garage Breaking Bad, and you owe that money. You can come to me and ask for it, I'll be, you know. Or you can come go to her. Why wouldn't you come to me if I'd give you a lower interest rate? Well, because I'd want to know what the money was for, and when I, you told me, I'd beat your ass. See, <laughs> yeah, I'll charge you a higher rate, but I'm not going to ask you why you need it. You see, that's one of the reasons, historically, that banks did go to the federal funds market. Even though the, rate was, the federal funds rate was higher, they'd still go there because they wouldn't be pushing at the dragon of the, of the Federal Reserve going to the discount window. However, the one I described earlier is the most common. It's called open market operations, OMOs. These happen all the time, minute to minute. The fractional reserve ratio is set maybe once every couple of years. The discount rate is set eight times a year. These open market operations are being executed night and day, every day of the year. They are the most common kind. I ask this on an exam. Which of the three tools of monetary policy is most frequently used? And it's the open market operations. Here's how they work, and I do not want you to n- try to memorize this, because quite honestly, I'm giving you a super simplistic model of it right here. But this is kind of like the framework of how it works. Here's the FOMC. They make a decision on which, whether to drain or add liquidity. That decision is then communicated to the Empire Bank in New York now at the Empire Bank there is a desk called the domestic trading desk and by desk I don't mean something that was built by Sauter I mean uh, floor after floor after floor of traders You can get a job there, I have a couple of students who work for the Domestic Trading Desk. What the Domestic Trading Desk does is the manager of the desk gets the orders from the FOMC. The president of the FOMC is the one who comes out of the meeting, calls his bank, the trading desk manager and says, okay, add or drain liquidity. The manager just sends the message out to all the traders. Here's how it works. Here is a domestic trading desk trader. The trader will have huge numbers of dollars the trader will also have huge numbers of T-bills. They're both high-liquidity, perfectly safe instruments. And here is a bank. Now the bank, in its tier one capital, has to have dollars and has to have T-bills. Those are both super safe and the bank has to have a certain level of those. Now let's say that the bank wants, the trader is told, drain liquidity. Drain liquidity. Okay, let's take, you are a trader, I'm a bank. You've been told, drain liquidity from the banks. So you're going to call me, I'm a bank. Ring, ring, hello. You say, hi, I'd like to sell you some (laughs) T-bills. You see, because if you sell me T-bills, that adds T-bills, and I pay you money for those that you can then shred, that drains liquidity. On the other hand, suppose that you're told that you have to add liquidity. You're going to call me and say, hey, I'd like to buy some of your T-bills. So what that, in that case, what happens is I send you a T-bill And you send me money to add liquidity. That's how this works, in a nutshell. Now, there are some insane combinations and complications on this, and I won't go into those, but that's how it's done. That's an OMO. A trader either sells a bank, T-bills, so that dollars go from the bank to the Fed where they're shredded, or the bank buys T-bills in which case I send the Fed T-bills and they send me money electronically in a fraction of a second. That's how monet, That's how this is done to the tune of billions of dollars every day. And it's all governed by what the FOMC tells the desk, uh, the desk manager to do which he then communicates to the traders. That's the third type of monetary policy it is the most commonly used and it is effective as you can see the money supply has been drained i i told you this earlier in the course when we were in the covid crisis first it started we were starting to slip into a recession in 2020 and the president strong-armed the fed to crank up the money supply to keep a recession from happening It did anyway, but it was barely noticeable. But so there was this extra money in the economy swirling around, liquidity overhang. And then the COVID crisis happened. And then the Fed (laughs) print money, write checks. The treasury wrote checks, COVID checks, and those PPP loans or whatever they were, uh, just vast oceans of money were going into the economy. And that was creating this massive liquidity overhang. Ultimately, of course, that created the inflation. And now the Fed, then the Fed said, okay, we've got to drain that liquidity out. They did it fairly fast. And of course, as you can see, the yield curve is having a fit because the money supply was being drained so rapidly. That's how that whole mess worked. Yeah. When you say that the traders would take the money and shred it, you you mean they hold it, or do you oh, I mean they—they, they, uh, if any of you, I take my, uh, okay, I, I, I used to run the Illinois State Students in Finance, and we would go to the uh, district bank. Now the one in St. Louis is great; they've got all these programs, they and they got these tours, and I w- took them down there, and I mean they showed literally money being shredded up and, Oh, of course electronically you can just tell the electrons to go to some other part of the universe these days but yeah it's literally they destroy that money they don't want that money to come back uh, and all of that and if you get a chance, now I like I said, the the St. Louis Fed was just a great place to go. They have this big open, the giant museum kind of room where you can actually see a million dollars in a in a uh, suitcase and all kinds of fun like that. The Chicago Fed is not as. Well, it, it was uh, not inviting. There was uh, the the whole thing was like security lockdown city. Uh, I, they they had to escort my students into this little room where they had a little museum, and I followed my students in. And this big security guard, she hits me across the knuckles. She said, "That's enough. You can't go in." I, I she hit me right across the I, Damn bitch! You know that hurt. And. She was mean to me. We went out to dinner that night. It was pretty good. (laughs) Uh, But anyway... uh Where the hell? Oh, okay. But yeah, you can go and see this in action, this whole thing. Uh, I don't know if you're allowed to go in and look in the window where the printing actually is done. The minting is actually, you know, with the giant sheets of $100 bills and all this. You kind of say, do you have samples of that?" that? You can, however, get a nice bag that has shredded money in it. And then, of course, you take it apart and try to glue it all back together. But... Okay, moving on here. Okay, so that's the process of monetary policy. But interestingly enough, the Federal Reserve actually has three jobs. Their monetary policy is one of the three. So we can start. The Federal Reserve Act said... You have three jobs, and only one of those. Three jobs of the Fed. Only one of those is conducts monetary policy. That whole complicated thing I just did, that was just job number one. The second job of the Fed is that it serves as a bank for banks. I mean, banks need a bank. They can't use themselves to write checks. So the Federal Reserve serves as a bank for banks. Now, here's the, here's the part that's... <laughs> They go direct, in direct competition with private commercial banks that do banking for banks. If you're a bank, you could come to me, the Fed, for your checking accounts and all that kind of stuff, or you could go to another, a bank that specializes in that kind of thing, a private bank. Now, here's what the Federal Reserve Act says. The Federal Reserve can't undercut commercial banks on fees. It can't do that. Even though it's huge, it's not allowed to. And second, the Federal Reserve must constantly be innovating and improving its technology. And then it is required to give that technology free to its competitor private banks. You ever seen paper checks, those MIRC, those magnetic codes at the bottom? That was a Fed innovation decades ago. And once they had perfected it, they immediately shared it with all the banks of their competitor commercial banks. Here, we all use this now. The same was true with the ATM technology. The Fed created it and then immediately shared the code down to the code level with all of its competing commercial banks so that all banks could offer debit cards and all that kind of stuff. And even at that, now, two things. One is the Fed is in the business of making money, uh, this operation. How much does it make? Well, it turns over to the Treasury at least several billion dollars every year. It just says, here, this is how much we made, this belongs to the people now, every year. Now, the second thing is, does the Fed hurt commercial banks by competing against them? I did not know the answer to this until a few years ago. I called the St. Louis Fed and I said, um, how much of commercial banking does the Fed do versus private commercial banks for banks? And he said, well, I can't speak to other regions, but here in the St. Louis region, in our district, about 65% of the banks use the Fed's banking services and 35% use private bank services. And I said, well, do you have any numbers on their profitability? Are they profitable, these private banks that compete against you? They said, oh yeah, they're more profitable than we are. They can charge more than we charge, we're just not allowed to charge less than they charge deliberately. So they make money. The interesting part of that is, I, I wrote a series of um, papers trying to, during the, uh, the big huge fight back Uh, during the Obama administration about uh, uh, universal health care. Everyone was saying, make it all government, and the other side was saying, make it all private, leave it private. And I was saying, why don't we do what the Fed does? We have the federal government runs the health insurance company and allows the private sector to run its and operate under the same rules that the Federal Reserve does in its competition with banks. Of course, no one wanted to hear that. That sounded too reasonable, and so that never played. But we have a model where the government can provide a service and the private sector can still thrive with its own version of that service. But again, that never flew. One last thing. The Fed regulates and supervises banks. The regulation is at the governor's level. They take laws and they figure out regulations that make those laws happen. And then they have the district banks supervise based on those regulations. They have the district banks supervise. And that's a very common uh, thing in modern uh, governments. Laws are passed, but what the hell do those laws mean? There has to be an agency to figure out, okay, this law means that this should be done and this should be done. And then they have an enforcement division that says, okay, here's what our bosses say you have to do, now we're going to go around and make sure that you do that. Now, interestingly enough, the Fed is not the only regulator of banks. It's a crazy quilt. The Fed oversees Federal Reserve Banks, but there are other kinds of banks like for example, there are banks that are regulated and supervised by the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. There are banks that are overregulated and supervised by the comptroller of the currency. There are, there are agencies in every state that regulate and supervise state chartered banks. It's madness. I think I told you about this earlier in the semester, Back at, during the 2008 banking crisis, that crazy quilt of regulation came, became very obvious. And so Congress pulled everyone and said, we've got to have a single authority to oversee all of them. Of course, the Fed said, here we are. And, oh, the turf war began. Oh, no, you're not touching our banks. No, you're not touching FDIC, control over the currency. Uh, Even the credit unions were peeing, them. we're not even banks, ha ha ha. So it didn't get solved. We still have a crazy quilt of regulation. So that kind of warns us that we may have some problems down the road because of the inconsistencies in regulation and supervision. For your part, though, this is a lot of jobs. I regularly get email from these different authorities like the Fed, the comptroller of the currency, the FDIC, we need people for our teams. The way they work is that they put these teams together, four or five people, uh, experts in different fields, and they send them to banks and they're constantly auditing banks. That's what they do. They pay well, they get a lot, four days a week usually, And if you're working for any part of the federal government, you get federal benefits, and you don't have to worry about budget cuts because they pay for themselves through the fees they charge the banks to oversee them. So if you're interested in that kind of work, I've had a surprising number of students get into that line of work, and they love it, and they make decent money, especially after they've been there a year or two. So let me know if that's something that would be interesting to you. And no, it's not all finance and accounting majors. They hired, um, what? last year they hired someone, it wasn't one of my students, but um, he was a marketing major with, in quantitative analytics. So, I mean, there's a lot of room for this. I'm going to show you a, a back up here a little bit. The, there are all kinds of conspiracy theories that involve the Fed. The Fed is you know, run by the Freemasons. The Fed is run by the uh, Jewish Communist conspiracy. The Fed is run by aliens. You would be surprised at how fierce these idiots are. But at the same time, I don't want to give you the impression that the Fed is some perfect organization that does the right thing at all, t- at, at all the time. Something I should bring up here, and you probably saw this in macroeconomics. We break up the money supply into different domains. At the very basic level is M0. That's just cash and currency. How much of that is flowing through the economy? Hardly anyone even talks about M0. Because the next level, M1 is M0 plus demand deposits. In other words, checking accounts. Highly liquid. There are also traveler's checks in there, but, I mean, no, no one uses... Tra- Does anyone in here, has anyone in here ever used a traveler's check? They used to be rather significant, and they and they're in here, but they're so minimal I don't even mention them much. Now, M2 has M1 plus negotiable order of withdrawal accounts. Those are checking accounts of credit unions. And it has small time deposits. Up to, I think, $10 million. M2 is not a Negotiable order of withdrawal. You see, in a credit union, they call it a check, but it's not a check. Because technically, if you wrote me a check, if you wrote me a check from a credit union, I mean, probably the credit union will honor it just like a bank check right away. But it doesn't have to. It can hold it. So there's not as much liquidity in a now account. No one ever notices it but it really isn't as liquid. And then there is the 800-pound gorilla, M3, which is M2 plus the euro euro deposit. In other words, our money all over in the central banks of the world. When you buy a toaster from China, you send them $10, that goes into the central bank of China. That is euro, Uh, Well, we call them euro dollars or something like that. But it is money, American money, in central banks of other countries. And in general, I call those euro dollars. And there is a vast ocean. Now, I'm going to show you something here. Let me pull this up here. resources now some years back when I was a writer uh, an economics, finance and political writer I was warning that there was a recession coming here's what was going on M3 was going crazy. This isn't the growth of M3. This is the rate of growth of the growth of M3. In other words, this was all of our dollars we were flowing to China and other countries to buy their imports. Notice that M2 was even growing. The way the Fed was trying to control the money supply It was executing open market operations, and it brought the economy's M1, the money that we use, down to an average growth rate of zero. That's what caused the crisis of 2008. Basically, the Fed starved the base economy of the lubricant that it uses, trying to to do something to correct this massive growth of M3. That was what it was. It wasn't, well, too many high-risk loans, or... No! The Fed just cut the money supply that we use, M1, down to zero. And if you do that long enough, the economy is going to buckle. It's like an engine without oil. One last thing. Conspiracy theories are, most of them these days, are embarrassing. Everything from the flat earthers to the aliens are among us. Look over here. Uh, see this? See this spike right here? You know what that was? That was 9 11. The bank, the Federal Reserve, thought that right after the attack, people were going to run the banks. So they literally created an armada of armored trucks and uh, escorts to get money into all the banks in the country as fast as possible in case people freaked out and they ran the banks after the attack. Well interestingly enough, people were pretty cool about it. They they didn't run the banks. They just saw said WTF. So of course we have then the Fed drained that mass of liquidity out uh, six months later. But there's a problem with this explanation. This was 9-11. Why was the Fed pouring money into the banks before 9-11? You see, there was, the liquidity was being pumped into the banks in the spring. The week before the attacks most of the spike of liquidity had already happened. Do you see the problem with that? The question that you might ask? How in the hell would they have known to pour liquidity into the banks months before, days before, the attacks actually happened? Just something to keep you in your minds. That's all I have for you. I thank you.